Hello, ladies and gents. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode. <coughs> God damn. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is seen in a perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. That's the usual intro music, but I'd like you to hear a brand new version reimagined by none other than Justin Bereda of The Glitch Mob. Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where I deconstruct world-class performers to find the tools, tricks, routines, habits that you can use. And of course, those experts range from billionaire investors to chess prodigies to Arnold Schwarzenegger to everyone in between. And you do find commonalities. And in this particular episode, we delve into a world that I know very little about, and that is the world of music. 
we have Justin Beretta, who is a founding member of The Glitch Mob. And if you haven't heard that name or you don't recognize that name, you will definitely recognize some of their music. And it could range from their trailers or the trailers in which they're featured. So you could list Sin City 2, Edge of Tomorrow, Captain America, Spider-Man, to their commercial work. So commercials for Fiat, Audi, and so on. They also debuted their last album, Love, Death, Immortality, incredibly well on Billboard. Number one electronic album, number one indie labels, number four overall digital albums. And this is fascinating because from an entrepreneurial standpoint, not only are they indie, they're not associated with a big label, they're artist owned. And we delve into all of this. How did they go from unknown to on top of the world, playing to 90,000 people in Quebec with Dead Mass, for instance? We dig into the war stories, the creative stories, the process, how that has been refined over time, and you get to hear some never-heard-before early drafts of some of their biggest hits, and Justin walks through exactly how those were refined over time to become what millions of people now love and listen to all the time. It's a fascinating discussion with an artist. Even if you feel like you have no interest in music process, you will find things ranging from his schedule to his meditative practice that you can use. It's a really fun interview. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here is Justin Barreta. Justin, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, Tim? It's going well. I appreciate you making the time, and as a long-time fan, I appreciate you making the music, first and foremost. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of all the, the four-hour empire as well, so it's, it's an honor to, to get to talk to you. And I know we, I guess, initially connected via Twitter, I think it was, is how we, we came in contact. Is that how the, how the pieces came together? Yeah, I think so. I think you you had posted something on Soundtracking, which is a app that we both used, and I started following on there. And then, and then yeah, we just kind of just started chatting from there. That, that had to be a year or two ago. Yeah, yeah, it probably was. And then I I've continued as a consumer of music, and now we finally have a chance to dig into the music. So the first question I really wanted to ask you uh, is what you are world class at, or what your closest friends or associates or band members consider you world-class at? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, I think that we're known to perform crazy, intense, and perform and produce really crazy, intense, um, cinematic music. We're kind of off in our, in our own category. Um, and we're also known for being a very DIY operation. We do almost everything ourselves we have uh we and we own our own label and we have a very close relationship with our fans so the how, how does the closeness with the fans manifest itself what and and what has led to that well you know the, the funny thing about i mean because your fans are are die hard i mean really really die hard which i appreciate absolutely <laughs> so how did how did that happen what do you think are the factors it's you know i think um you know, one of the one of the interesting things about about building something that's very DIY is it's been a very very slow burn for us. It's been we've been at this for a while. You know, I think the very first Glitch Mob show just the other day. By the way, I should mention um, Glitch Mob is myself, uh, two other guys, Edit and Ua, names Ed and Josh, who um, who are also in the group. And um, when we got our start, we, Josh found the very first mixtape from us in 
I think it was 2006 the other day when he was cleaning out his house. So it's been a, it's been a, a long process for us. And right out of the gates, we were, it, we were interacting with our fans. I mean, this is going to date me, but this was back in the days of MySpace. So <laughs> on our mixtape, it said myspace.com slash the glitch mob. But, but right away, what we would do is we, um, when we first started playing shows, we would finish every show and we would take a stack of CDs and hand them out to people. And we continued that tradition. And in fact, we still kind of do that. So it, it was baked into our DNA from, from day one to have a very hand-to-hand, face-to-face interaction with people. And, and we've kind of continued that ethos through into the, the era of Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and everything where we have a very, a very close personal relationship. People, there's people we've known and we've, you know, we've, we've been touring, um, for quite a while now. So, and you know, we all, we actually also have a group of very ultra, uh, diehard fans that are in a sort of, um, a forum called the mob and we meet up with them before every show and after the show and we have um you know we do fun projects and stuff like that so so for us um we also get a lot of a lot of feedback back from them when we very first started doing this it it was it was us we were making these more more dance floor centric tracks and i think the the more we started to realize how much music has the ability to affect people and we started to get these stories about back from people about our music being a part of their lives in some way we started to take everything really very seriously and because we have such a close relationship with people people they have the the logo tattooed in their body which is the first time we saw that we thought wow wow this is someone who took the time to get the logo tattooed on their body which we all have tattoos and our manager does too so we take we take everything very seriously and we take the power of music um to be very serious it, it's it's something that's very important to us and uh, I mean, one of the stories, of course, uh, that really struck me was the the Grant Corgan story. Um, mm. a snowmobile after a snowmobile accident uh, was, uh, I guess, basically diagnosed as potentially never walking again. And f- fast forward after listening listening to the Glitch Mob and PT and interacting with you guys, planted a Glitch Mob flag at the South Pole <laughs> after. I guess traveling the majority of the way in a push sled and then walking the last, whether it was a hundred feet or a hundred yards, I don't recall, but just such a incredible story. How did that change you guys? And of course I'm going to come back to the origin story and ask more questions, but how did that change? If it did your creative process or how you think about your craft after, after that type of story comes to you? Yeah, I mean, I, it absolutely did, and that was that was something that really, I'd say, got into the the DNA of what we do. You know, I um, I think that when we really realized, and when we so when we first met Grant, actually, a friend of his had emailed us, and and this is, I think, this is also part of us being really tapped into what people say. Is that I mean, this this email could have gone away, you know, but we we pay attention to to important emails like this. And someone had emailed and said, "Hey, look, my friend got in a really bad accident, and he's he's never going to walk again. And you know, he he loves your music. So anything you could do to cheer him up." And so we said, obviously. So we had someone on our team send him a bunch of um, stuff, just like we signed some. Uh, you know, some drumsticks and some CDs and everything. And then we just, we got a a friendship going with him from there. And then he showed up at one of our shows in Reno and he was on crutches and he said, you know, thank you guys for being there so much. And, and then he came to actually, he came out to our show, we played at Red Rocks and 
And when he showed us that video uh, or the picture of him at the South Pole, I mean, we all were, were actually moved to tears. It was, it was a fantastic moment. And I think that was something when we realized that music really does have the power to, to transcend. Or maybe it was, you know, I, I also feel like it, it's a, um, Grant is an amazing guy as is. And the fact that he could do that, the fact that we even helped kind of nudge him along. And I think that's also along with his friends and families. And we played a part in that. It really made us take everything very, very seriously. And, you know, I think it's easy to be cynical these days about everything, um, you know, and, and music in particular. But we, you know, it's, it's a very, very serious thing to us. No, it's a very powerful, powerful art form. And I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine about just the interspecies differences and similarities related to beat and music and mm. and just trying to determine, uh, obviously outside of music theory, but what what itch does music scratch for human beings? It's such a fascinating question for me. And it's, it's so fascinating. Have, have you read this book called uh, This Is Your Brain on Music? I have not. I, I, I can't rec- recommend that enough. It's by this guy named uh, Daniel Levitin, and he really digs into that whole question, and it gets deep into um, neuroscience, but, um, it, it is a really fascinating thing. And he, he, he goes into the evolutionary, um, thinking behind why, why music does what it does. It's almost too much for me to even get into here. I can't, <laughs> can't say I fully understand a lot of the neuroscience, but, um, it's really interesting. Awesome. No, I, I, and I wanted to t- just talk about or ask you about really what makes the glitch mob unique and different because uh, there are there, there are obviously so many bands out there. There's so much noise. There's so many so many people and bands clamoring for attention. But you've you've hit a point where I was watching this video of uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it was ninety thousand people in a in mm. in Quebec. And uh, you know what is it that? Well, number one, actually, I'm bouncing around a little bit, but what does it feel like to be on stage in front of 90,000 people? Is there anything you can compare it to? Um, you know, actually, it's a really hard feeling to describe. And the only the only way thing I can liken it to is skydiving. Have you tried skydiving before? I have. So you know the feeling with skydiving where you jump out of the airplane and it's it's so crazy, you almost aren't even scared. It's so fucking surreal. You're like, wow, <laughs> okay, I'm just experiencing this right now. Right. Yes, I that's, do. That, <laughs> that's kind of the feeling of being on on a stage like that. Is it's so surreal and it's so there's there's a there's like a terminal velocity with the amount of people that once it gets so big, it just feels like you're in a dream. It's very surreal and it's also actually very. Um, there's something really fascinating that happens in crowds that big where you can feel even even with that many people you can feel the way that the energy of the music can affect people and as you're you're riding the ups and downs and the waves of the crowd there's some sort of primal interaction that happens and with that many people it's really intense and it's also yeah it's also a very meditative experience for me you know I'm a lot of even that show in particular when I was up there playing I remember thinking almost getting a chance to listen to my music and then see everyone experiencing the music and, and hear it along with them and sort of getting a dose of my own medicine there. So it's a very uh, kind of spiritual, um, surreal experience to be up there. Well, it has to be some type of communion. I mean, it's it's uh, having done some experimentation in the for lack of a better term, spiritual realm, <laughs> which we yeah. can get into the 
pharmacology of another time, but uh, the, the that energetic transmission, that interaction is is from my just empirical experience at least absolutely real so i can i cannot even imagine being the focal point of 90,000 human beings <laughs> that's that's uh it it just must be you know transcendental almost on some level uh, absolutely what now you did send me uh <laughs> you sent you sent me an email and we've we've corresponded of course and you mentioned a few things and you said that these are all interesting because not only are we indie, but we're artist owned. And I wanted to, I wanted you to elaborate on that because I'm not familiar with the music industry. I yeah. listen, I'm an avid listener of music, but what, what do those two terms mean? And just to provide some context for, for people, and I'm reading from, from Wikipedia here, but the sophomore Glitch Mob album, Love, Death, Immortality, debuted at number one on the Billboard Dance Electronic Songs chart. Now, that sounds like a pretty big deal, and I would imagine it is, right? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, in a, you know, in, a, in a way it is and in a way it's not. I mean, I guess, you know, to be quite honest, we don't pay too much attention to the charting and every, it's all, I mean, it's nice to be recognized for, for what you do. And I think I'm, um, you know, it's funny cause we're, we're kind of like the oddballs of the, of the electronic music or EDM world. And I, um, which just a kind of a side note, I, I don't totally use those terms interchangeably. I think, um, I was actually getting, getting a chance to come on this podcast, maybe kind of think about this because just for me personally, when I think of electronic music, it's just music and EDM is music plus industry plus apps plus festivals and uh, Spotify and everything into one. So kind of consider them to be two separate things. But um, that aside, um, you know, the the whole thing with with the difference between an independent and a major and an um an artist owned label. So when we when we first dropped our album and it did well, it hit number one on that electronic chart and it made it to number thirteen in the top twenty, which is pretty crazy actually, because when you look at a lot of those the albums that were the top twenty in that point in time, it was people like Katy Perry or Eric Church, who's this country guy, and a lot of these people are on major labels. And so those are the equivalent of um big massive companies. You know, these labels are they're huge. You know, something like um Interscope is a very big company. Um, so then you have an independent label, which is a much smaller company potentially that is owned um, and, and and not backed by this effective huge corporation. And then you have an artist-owned label, which means that we actually do everything. So we provide all of these things together. So it's a very in-house operation. So, so you have – now your operations are not – at least the performances are – real productions i mean this is not <laughs> so i would imagine uh you have had to wear and you guys have all had to wear a lot of hats uh what is what does your team currently look like yeah absolutely we've had and i think that's that's also part of our the ethos and um and everything that has gotten us to where we are today is actually the the wearing of multiple hats and we all have our own specific things that that we're good at um you know, there was a point in time when when we very first get got this thing going, where we actually built our own light show. You know, we have we Josh and I went to Home Depot and we were 
hammering and sawing lights outside of Ed's house while he was inside mixing down some audio. And I mean, we were very, very DIY. We, we schlepped this uh, thing in a U-Haul trailer around the country. And, you know, it's to, the fact today that we actually have a team of people around us that, that can help. And actually, people that are better than us at what we do is that was a, that was a big moment for us, you know, because we actually would, you know, we mix and master our own music. Actually, um, uh, well, the the last albums we've had other people um, do the mastering, but you know, we we produce, we record, we do all the music stuff ourselves. We had actually built the the stage show ourselves. We programmed it. We programmed the lights. We bought the lights. So we kind of did everything. And so fast forward to now, um, we have a team of people that that are really experts at what they do. So for instance, for the live show, there's a guy named Martin Phillips and Martin Phillips is a specific stage show designer. Like that's just, that's what he does. So he, he, he meets with an artist and he's kind of like a creative director type, type guy where he can hear the music. And then we collaborate with him, um, with, with a bunch of other people to basically create the, this, the light, the light, um, the stage show, which was called the blade. Um, so there's a guy, a guy named Matt who, Matt Davis, who's the programmer. So he's an expert level stage design programmer. I mean, this guy is, he's, he's one of our dearest friends. He's just, he's the best. And he, he basically programs all of the under the hood stuff that makes the blade tick. Um, and so when we go out on tour, there's about 14 to 15 people total to make the show happen. Got it. And how many of those people are are full time with you guys, or are the is is the core three are the core three of you the only full time? Mm. So the, the only full time people. So yeah, so there's us. Obviously, we have a manager, um, Kevin Wolf, who has been with us since when, since day one, and um, our booking agent who takes care of all the live shows, named Steve, and he's also been with us since since day one. And then there's a tour manager who manages. Um, everything that happens out on the road and to make everything else happen. So those are, those are the main full-time people. And then we have someone who does all of the, the social media strategy and stuff. And, um, we actually do all of the posting on and tweeting and Instagramming ourselves, but there's someone who deals with all of the nuts and bolts of the, um, you know, the, the internet side of things. Right. Got it. And, uh, I, I'd love to, here a little bit. This is going to be very nitty gritty, but I'm I'm just I know there are going to be people who are very curious about this. When you're in the studio, as it sounds like you are now, um, what 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 is the software that you use on a daily or weekly basis? What are the tools that you guys use? So right now we base everything on this program called Ableton, and um, it's a very it's a very ubiquitous program these days. I think most people are starting to produce on it, and we've actually been around the block on everything. I mean, we've used um, for the audio nerds out there. I mean, we started with Pro Tools, and we moved to Cubase, and then we've done Logic. So we've tried everything, and we and um, Ed used to have tons of outboard gear. So the what is the, outboard gear? So the, right now, um, the, the, the term is called in the box, which means everything is done in the computer. Like our studio, it's just a monitor, a keyboard, and, um, and you know, uh, a, an actual piano keyboard for playing notes. And then some studios have tons of gear that lives on the outside of the computer. So there's compressors and EQs and a lot of tools that are 
these custom boxes that cost thousands of dollars that are really high-end stuff mm -hmm. that um, now that the technology is getting more and more powerful, we actually sold everything outboard and moved in the box so that we could actually travel. So, um, and it's arguable. I mean, there's a whole, it's, it's the funny cause like the analog digital argument permeates, um, music in all sorts of different ways. I and mean, even in the sort of, you know, there's people who are vinyl purists or people who like to listen to Spotify because it's, it's easier. Say so it's the same thing in the production side. There's some people that think that analog is the way to get the best quality sound and we're not really arguing that, but we actually, it's, it's a lot easier because also we have a distributed studio. So our, our toolbox is Ableton, a handful of plugins, and then everything is synced on Dropbox. So that way we have, we can have, um, sessions open in all different machines. And then we use, um, uh, these plugins called Universal Audio that actually emulate all the outboard gear that you could buy. Very cool. And on the road, does that change at all, or is is uh, aside from the the uh, as, let's see, aside from the actual blade and so on, does the the actual music uh, production side of things change much when you're performing, or is are you still working off of primarily laptops with Ableton? Um, so. It does change entirely, actually. Um, but the, the Ableton software stays the same, and that's the benefit of a, of the way that Ableton is put together is that it's actually a production and a performance suite all in one. So we write everything in Ableton, and then because we're all basically um, synced up and, and everything is, is very modular, then our so the, <laughs> there's a system that drives the blade, and that's the thing that Matt has programmed. Um, and it's called we call it Lil Kim, and it's this. <laughs> it's why, this why do you, why do you call it Lil Kim? Because we just we just needed a name for it, and it's this big, just gnarly pile of computers and boxes and wires. And Ed just said, "Let's call it Lil Kim." <laughs> um, so it's a Mac Pro, and then it has two Mac minis in there and the Mac minis actually do all, all the MIDI routing for the blade. And then there's another laptop, which is a backup system. So if the Mac pro dies, we have a, a button up. There's a big red button that will switch because when you're playing these, these huge crowds, you have to have layers of redundancy. So we have the, we have many, many different layers of redundancy, but yeah, but Lil Kim, it's still based on Ableton, but we move the entire thing to a more beefy and robust system. And then there's a lot of audio, that comes out, and this is actually something that does separate us from, I would say, 99% uh, of other electronic artists out there, is that we split out our audio like a typical band. And what that means is, like, let's say you go see a rock band play. You have, there's a guy playing bass, there's a guy playing drums and vocals, and then there's a, someone who's at the front of house, which is the, the sound booth up front, who's mixing all these together to fit the sound of the room and get the optimal sound. Now, when you go see most DJs play, they're playing music that's already been mixed together. Um, so, so it's just it's just one one track, and there's not a whole lot that he can do. So we actually are a hybrid of the live rock world and then the electronic world, and that we actually send out kick, snare, and all the different elements of the sound to come out, so that our sound engineer can really tweak and get the most optimal sound for each room we play in. That's very cool. And the kick kick is the bass drum. Exactly, yeah. Got it. And uh, just to just to rewind for a second, what is mastering exactly? So so mastering, so let's say we finish our album 
um, I'll, I'll give you a real world example. Is we finished writing Love, Death, and Mortality after after um, two years of writing it, and mastering is the process of taking it from being an unfinished product to basically a finished listening product that you would buy in a CD or something. And there's there's stuff that happens. A lot of it has to do with evening out um, levels or changing the the quality of the sound. There's certain things that have to happen to have it be on a recorded on a recorded medium. Um, and it changes depending on what music it is. But it's really just the finishing process that the last final thing that makes music all sound consistent. Or, or for instance, you know, let's say some of the like one song is quieter than the other. Um, well, the mastering engineer, who's not us, um, would would go through and tweak everything just a little bit so that it gets to be a consistent listen, and then the the bass, that the treble, and everything is matched throughout it. The uh, the record. Got it. And uh, I know I'm bouncing around here with Ableton. So Ableton has come up a few times for me recently, and one of the contexts which I was surprised by is that. Uh, not that I have any right to be surprised because I know nothing about this stuff, but Ira Glass of This American Life uses Ableton for mm. his performances when he does speeches and wants to layer in audio and so on. Oh wow! Do you, th- if you were to create a podcast yourself, would you do? Would you use Ableton for that, or would that be overkill? No, I, I would. I would use Ableton. I mean, it, I guess it's hard to. Uh, not be biased because I use it all day, every day. But um, I actually think that you can do, um, you can do some really complex and and interesting stuff with it, or you can do really really basic stuff. I mean, actually, Ableton's a program that comes up a lot because the learning curve is not too bad. I mean, for instance, a friend of mine just had a his his girlfriend's uh, twelve or thirteen year old little brother wanted to learn to DJ and produce. So that's, you would give some a beginner, give them Ableton. So really? yeah, absolutely. So it's easier than pro tools, for instance, a hundred percent. Yeah. yeah it's, okay. it's, it's really, it's, it's not too hard to, to learn in the grand scheme of things. Interesting. So I'm at a point where I'm, I'm interested in audio. I would, uh, not that I plan on doing it, everything myself, but I'd like to have a fundamental set of audio editing skills because I find it interesting. If I'm starting from scratch and I'm trying to choose from GarageBand, uh, Audacity, uh, Pro Tools, Ableton, and I'm I'm starting from ground zero, so I have no training in any of them, Ableton would be your recommendation? Yeah, I I would say so. Also, because Ableton is so robust and is used so widely, you get the benefit of people like us hammering on it and and so for instance there's ableton has a very reliable crash feature so if the program crashes it saves your undo history so that means that it will pick up um so you know you won't lose a whole lot of it crashes and other programs have that but because it's really you know it's it's a very living breathing um piece of software and it's used so much by the community i think that that it's really the right way to go. And the stuff that they're doing with it over the next couple of years, I think it's going to be really crazy. And it's, it's, it's worth the time to, to figure it out. And also, you can do all sorts of other um, crazy stuff with it. But even for the really basic things, I mean, yeah, even for instance, you know, um, there's progress. It's, it's arguable. Some people will tell you that Pro Tools and Logic are more robust and powerful in what they can do. And that might be true. However, I would say that... Um, Ableton, you get the most bang for your buck. I mean, we didn't choose it because it's the absolute best and most complex 
uh, Swiss Army knife. It's actually the fastest way to get things done. Cool. Okay. No, say no more. That's a great. That's uh, that's a great way to convince me. <laughs> Sold. Uh, I I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, the the commercial success that you've had because I find it so fascinating and encouraging that you are artist owned very DIY yet you have you've you, your music shows up all over the place i mean it's uh, i remember you sent me a number of links some of some of which i had i had seen before whether it's sin city 2 edge of tomorrow captain america spider-man and just the list just goes on and on and on and on and on how how did you as this this artist owned upstart and I should, I suppose, ask, have you always been artist-owned? So maybe you can answer that too. But how, how have you ended up getting into these massive uh, motion pictures, for instance? Yeah, well, and we, all, we have always been artist-owned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, um, just to jump around one, one little bit here, I think that, you know, the, the part of our whole genesis was really just out of the love of music, you know, when we first started in 2006 and 2007, we started doing this. You would never say, "I'm going to be a producer because I want to be rich or famous or even cool." You know, in, in fact, at that point in time, electronic music was was relegated to uh, raves, and I don't know, it just wasn't even anywhere fucking close to mainstream culture, which now right. it ha- it is. So it was funny. I, I mean, even remember doing interviews at. At, at that when we were very first getting some traction and people saying when you make we're kind of like oh you know electronic music because it was rock and hip-hop was really the thing so we almost had to love it because it felt like there was that's just what we were doing we were just kind of the oddballs of music and that's cool because we just like to do what we do and we, we are fascinated with there's a really interesting merger between technology and artistry which is which is part of the whole thing you know sort of like where where tech guys and tech fans and at the same time we also like the art of music so for us it was really a passion project like none of us ever decided to see you know what let's make a band we're going to call the glitch mob and we're going to do this it just kind of happened um so that said that's that's always how we've done things and when we started making when we wrote our our first full-length album drink the sea before that we were making i would say more more dance floor tracks that had a more hip-hop swag kind of um it was really like more more cut up hip-hop style stuff where it was just more dance floor music and so when we made drink the sea people expected us to do that and we we took a left turn and we all were having a you know we were all difficult we had a difficult moment in life and drink the sea for us became it was funny we all collectively were like having a sad about something you know, like break <laughs> breakups and heartbreak and so we said you know what fuck what people will expect us to do we're just gonna make this thing that was a very cathartic record for us. And it was a very personal record. And we didn't play that for anybody. You know, we didn't play it for our managers. We didn't play it for our friends. We just basically disappeared for a year. And, and, when, and this. when was that? What, uh, that was, that was like 2009, 2010, I think is when it. it came out. Okay. Um, and I think, I think it was 2010 drink. The sea came out. Um, so, so that said, it we had no particular intention with that. We, we about how it would be received or anything. It was very like a diary piece for us. It was a very introspective record. Record, and the interesting thing is that the 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 commercial success or the 
the um, superhero movies that started to glom onto it um, just happened naturally. And we never intended for that to happen. I think what we are, we didn't even understand why. We said, oh, wow, these, this is really cool. And we also just happened to like superhero movies. So it was a really cool thing. <laughs> were, and, were you a comic book nerd growing up or no? No, I wasn't a comic book nerd, but I was definitely into Transformers. And I don't say that in a uh, derogatory way since I have like, <laughs> I was a major comic book nerd. No, okay. I, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I never really got into, I had the Ren and Stimpy comic. That was the only one I really had. <laughs> I loved Ren and Stimpy. <laughs> I was really into horror movies and, and, um, and, uh, Stephen King. I was read a lot of Stephen King books growing up and stuff like that. But, but yeah. But um, you know, we never. I guess we never really just intended for that to happen. We, I, I actually didn't understand why these movies were choosing our music to use. Um, and I and I I think there's something inherently cinematic about our music. And something else that that I learned later in time was that it was about the dramatic changes in tonality that happened. So this, which is something that we did naturally so like one of our songs will start off with an emotion and we'll say okay now this feels um eerie and ethereal and then boom it switches to zombie attack mode and then it becomes really violent and then back so we kind of go we play with emotions texturally like that and um that was just more of an explorative phase for us are there any particular uh songs or tracks that that exemplify that that uh, that people should listen to um, I can, I can actually play you something right here. Um, that'd be great. Let's see. So I'm going to play, this is a track, um, called Animus Fox off of, off of our very first album. So you, yeah, you can kind of get the idea of there. Yeah. The, the, something felt very tense, and you didn't really know what's going to happen, and then it goes and, and switches right there. Right. No, I mean that's <laughs> it's kind of, and I mean this in the most positive way. It sort of screams movie preview, right? I mean, it's absolutely because yeah. you need that sort of tension, build up, shock, curiosity, and then go see the movie, right? The yeah. The now, now tell me, I'd love for you to tell me a story of the the first movie that you considered a, a real movie to reach out to you guys like how did that happen what was the email what was the phone call did you guys believe it you know like, tell, tell me a story of, of one of those i'll tell you one that sticks out and that was actually the um the sin city 2 trailer um and that one was special because i love Sin City. And the funny thing was that we were talking about making a video for Can't Kill Us. And that's the song that's in that video. So we were, 
We made it. We had a, a visual. <laughs> so they're like, "Hey, no problem. We'll make a twenty million dollar trailer for you." <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and apparently Robert Rodriguez, who I'm a huge fan of, I love Machete and I love the whole uh, his his whole thing and Grindhouse. Um, and so when he said, "Hey, we want we want to use this song for the trailer," I was like, "Well, we don't have to make a music video. And, you know, it's just it, it's just the most badass thing possible." And and a lot of the times, um, they will with the people who cut movie trailers who are actually in general the people who make movie trailers are a separate and i'm not an expert on this by any means but this is from what i understand is the people who make movie trailers are different from the people who make the movie especially in these big these big companies but it's different with robert rodriguez so he actually does everything himself he's he's kind of like us so he actually chose the song he found it and then he stuck it in there and i think that song um can't kill us is just it was for us it was it's just pure distilled badassery and i and the fact that that ended up in that movie <laughs> I, was, I was like really are you actually is that gonna happen i, I couldn't even doesn't uh just doesn't hurt having jessica alba in there either no that it's... moment did not <laughs> suck <laughs> so did did robert rodriguez just email like info at the glitchpop.com <laughs> or like I, did, give me some details here so there's a company that um and that basically is serves as an agent for licensing and everything like that. So they're called they're called Zinc, um, and they're from Los Angeles. And they basically have our music, and they have relationships with people um, out in the in the the film and TV world who I actually don't I don't, you know I don't know a whole lot about that aside from just making the music and and my minimal access to that. So then I think the way it works is that the people in the licensing world have so like if you know if you're Robert Rodriguez and you're cutting uh, a trailer. You put a you put a call out, and maybe your producer will get basically demos or or all, a diff, bunch of different companies will submit ideas for for what this might be, and they'll put in what they'll call a temp track, which is something that is has a general feel of what you might want. Um, and you know, every now and again, that doesn't happen like that. Actually, you know, sometimes there's a, there'll be a director who. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. You know, he might have heard the album and just said, "Oh, that's it." I, I actually don't even really know. But when we got that email, I, I kind of lost my shit. <laughs> and did uh, how did how does someone like Robert Rodriguez find? I'm looking at your website right now, theglitchmob.com. Uh, how does someone find Zinc, for instance? Do they go to some music specific IMDb and then search for your band and find the contact info for Zinc? Or how does someone for the and I ask partially because. Uh, not too long ago, and I love your timeline, by the way, for your band, because if you look at your like 2006, 2007, and then you have 2010 for the for the for the first album, it it matches my first book and second book, mm. and I remember doing a trailer for the Four Hour Body, and I just wanted from the very beginning in my head, I had Splinter, this track from Seven Dust, in my head, and I wanted to license it, and. Uh, with a larger label now suffice to say i was like cool just reach out to the band get the okay no problem <laughs> yeah and it was the most complicated quagmire of an experience <laughs> it's like oh wait no there's 17 people this isn't true with splinter but you, you look at some songs it's like no there's 17 people who own it but then there's 17 people who wrote it and then there's 17 more people who you need to get permissions from and i was like oh my god this is really complicated so it would be really nice to just reach out to for instance an agency or figure out it was hard just for me to figure out who owned what um so how does yeah. someone find the zinc agency and then reach out to them about your music for instance 
Well, the, the interesting thing, and that's, this kind of actually goes back to being artist owned is that we're a very small and, and nimble organization. Um, because there's not, that's part of the, the thing when that, that's the, that clusterfuck experience you had. Dealing with, <laughs> <laughs> that's dealing exactly with what it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's and, like, and now in fairness, just because I don't want to, uh, I want to give them full credit. Um, the, the seven dust guys are total sweethearts and were awesome yeah. it had it was had nothing to do with them Absolutely. uh not wanting it to happen and it did end up happening and which was very generous of them but it was just on the on the label side so not to interrupt but i wanted to make sure i said that of course no it's i think that's 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 important to say and a lot of the times bands on on labels don't know what their managers are doing to represent them or sometimes it's hard to get a hold of them and i just think that actually and there's i know people that work at labels there's a lot of super brilliant amazing people who work at labels, but I think institutionally there, it's just, it's, a, it's, it's a difficult way to get things done when you have to telephone anything through 17 people to get a yes or no. It's just, it's just complex. Um, but for us, yeah, I mean, our manager, our manager, Kevin, for instance, I mean, the a way that a lot of this stuff comes in, um, will go straight through, through him. Um, and you know, he's really the fourth member I mean, we call him a manager but he's just like one of our best friends and he's really he's like the the fourth member of the band and so a lot of the stuff comes in that he, and i think because i mean i can't speak for for other people but but yeah i mean we are i say he reads most emails that that come in and people some like sometimes people will, will tweet us and i actually read all the the twitter posts and so do the other guys and so between all that we have a we keep our ear to the ground as far as is is what's going on. Um, but you can you can also check out Zinc. It's like Z Y N C music. Cool. No, I, I'm just so fascinated by the inner yeah. workings of all this because LA and music <laughs> in general is just like one big labyrinthine, if that's the right word. <laughs> it's just this this huge uh, mystery to me in so many ways. Uh, it is, you know, I, I must say that it is to me too. And I, and I, I have to say to take everything I say with a grain of salt, because I actually don't think that I know that much about the music industry. I, because we're so strange, I actually don't, I, th I think that I'm really, the glitch mob is kind of the edge case here. So, so no, I, that's what this podcast is all about though. Studying yeah. the edge cases. No, I, I'm so, I, that's, that's part of the reason I really wanted to, to chat with you guys. And so just to, to, to rewind to Sin City 2 for a second, was that the lead domino that triggered the other movies? Or, um, well, let me ask you maybe a slightly different question. So, and I apologize, I'm blanking. Your manager's name, the fourth member? Uh, Kevin. Kevin. What is Kevin's superpower? What is he, what is he, what is he world-class at? Kevin, we, it's funny, we, we joke about him, but we call him the, the Buddha. And, he he is someone that in a world that is it's in it's in it's a it's a complex um it can be a very stressful very last minute high demand world um kevin as so what he does and what and i i got to say that a huge portion of of glitch mob's success comes back to kevin and obviously it's a it's a team effort because the music is really first and foremost but something that he's always um pushed us to do is just to do us and there's been times where he's never asked to hear any hear our music or he's never pushed us in a certain direction because he he just wants to foster 
what's been our natural voice this whole time. And some managers say would say, okay, maybe this thing is cool right now. You should do that. Or maybe that thing is cool. You should do that. And he's always allowed us to just, and, and, and really helped us just do us. And I think that, um, part of that whole process is that he helps us, helps navigate and insulate us from a lot of the bullshit that can happen because ultimately the creative process for us can be long. It can be fragile. It can be difficult. And he basically is there to let us do what we need to do to focus on and music and just write good songs because like you said, the music industry is a really complex, crazy place. But when you really boil it down, aside from, you know, all the, the, the industry side of things, I, I'm just here to make music and we are here for that primal connection we were talking about that music provides between between people so he helps to um to create that dynamic very cool and uh maybe you could tell me about an internal debate you don't have to name names but i'm really curious to know uh, you've you've had this success which i hope will continue on an upward trajectory that creative process, uh, in the beginning, you it's just you and a couple of guys in a room making music, right? It's, it, it's all the things in your head that you're, that you're bouncing back and forth. At a point, there's a lot of inbound. There's a lot of feedback from fans. There's a lot of feedback from um, a host, a host uh, uh, just multitudes of people. Mm-hmm. How do you... It, how do you guys resolve the, the external pressures with the the sort of silence and void necessary to do good creative work? I think that um, well, it's it's definitely having being so plugged in is a double edged sword because I think that if you are plugged in to a certain extent, you're going to internalize some of the stuff that that comes your way no matter what um i i think ultimately for us the having three of us helps for one thing the fact that there there we have three of us to to check each other and it's a very ping pong style creative process that by the time it bounces off all three of us it the the average of our own creative worlds is just kind of is um glitch mob you know, I, and I think we have a very small trusted committee of people and, and to be quite honest, um, I don't actually think we take anyone else's feedback, <laughs> even the very small committee of people, we really just listen to ourselves. And even if someone who we really trust is saying, you know, I don't like this or I don't like that, then we still just have to follow what has gotten us to this point. And that is our own, our own intuition and our own creative sensibility and telling really telling our own story about what that might be in the particular moment you know and and whatever that might be we have ended up being the type of artist that can kind of go many different directions you know i think some artists make similar albums and say the same thing um not 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 the same thing but i guess you know texturally speaking actually some of my favorite artists for instance i don't know if you've heard this group called uh boards of canada I have not. Uh, they're, they're Boards, art- B-O-A-R-D-S? Yeah. It's, it's very um, droney, beautiful um, music. And their albums, for me, are... It's almost like a familiar old friend that I can revisit over and over again. And they have this, this sort of one world they put you in. And we've ended up being... Um, and that, that's just kind of their, their DNA. Um, and for us, we like to 
keep it exciting for ourselves and change things up. And that's just really, that's really part of our process and following that intuition, I think has, has kept everything true and really not, not listening to what people say or what might be cool. And that's kind of also how we end up being, being the, you know, the quote unquote oddballs, um, of, of the current electronic music industries. We don't really pay a whole lot of attention to what our, our peers and contemporaries are doing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's when you're chasing what's cool, it's already too late. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's you're, you're, you're going to be, you're going to paddle like hell and you're going to be 20 feet behind the wave. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm curious to talk a little bit more about this committee because I don't ask, uh, I ask for input, but I'm very selective about the type of input that I let through yeah. into the process. And uh, I'm curious to hear how you solicit feedback, what you ask for, because, for example, in my writing, uh, before I ask anyone to tell me what they like or don't like, I, I ask them to read through a draft and just indicate what is unclear or what is confusing. Yeah. Uh, and that depersonalizes it. It makes it, uh, and you get more of a consensus also. Uh, if I have five people read it and they all flag a couple of areas as unclear, it means those need to change. Uh, yeah. that, that, I won't debate that. That's just a, that's a poor job on my part. Uh, <laughs> what, what type of feedback or how do you solicit feedback? So th this is an interesting process. Um, I, th I think there's something about music that is about intuition, right? It's like, it's, it's about getting your brain out of the way. And so this is a funny thing that happens where I'll play it, let's say for, for my mom or for a friend who doesn't have to be, happen to be a musician. And in, in a lot of times we'll, I'll value that sort of feedback. In, tremendously in this sense because people they'll say something like you know I'm not a producer but the song to me feels like X Y or Z and and for me it's a more pure response and I just want to hear how it makes people feel or what the very first thought that um, that comes to them versus someone who's a producer friend of ours who might be there to who who's going to zoom in on the details right so I'm really looking for just the general feeling or, or what what is the song you listen and you what what sort of images does this does this bring up and i wouldn't say we're really prone to changing stuff too much although with the last record we had recorded all these vocals and we actually wrote all of the lyrics and all the melodies so there's a point where we thought this record was just about done and we had said you know what we're going to do this because we want to try our hand at it and there was just something not write about it there's it's it's hard to put your finger on when you listen to a song you know, it's just it's it's such an interesting mixture between technical and intuitive but when we play these songs there's just something that wasn't quite right and i think at that point that's when we go play it to someone else to almost confirm or deny what it is i feel I think yeah that's like you know i wouldn't i wouldn't say does this sound bad to you i would just play it for someone and they're like yeah i don't know it's it's kind of sucks so okay great <laughs> so we actually had an entirely different record done. We had vocals that we wrote and recorded and we deleted everything. And that's why some of these songs ended up having two, 300 revisions. So we, we had the, a tour booked in September of 2013 and we had uh, every, all this stuff pending on that. And then we canceled all that because we said, you know what? The album's not good enough. And then what we ended up doing and all the songs you hear now were done in an entirely different process which was that we gave the song to 
a professional vocalist and lyricist who's that's what they do <laughs> and we just let them let them run with it and 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 be themselves and we realized that at least at this point in time that writing lyrics and melodies is not our forte so all the all the um the lyrics you hear now we're done in this way got it and what if when you're in the studio and you don't have a semi-finished product right you're you're starting from scratch what does a day in the studio look like when you are trying to work on a track that is nothing? Mm. So the way we're working, and and you know our process changes so much. I'll, I'll speak to what's happening um, right now. We're actually in the studio at the moment. I'll be heading over there after we hop off this call. But um, what we've done is we take some time in our in our solo studios and we write what we call sketches. So we have a very basic palette of instruments it's just like it's, it's almost as if you were painting and you just had three colors or even just a pencil like what can you do with this so it's focusing on the structure the feeling the the overall picture of the song so ed and josh and i all went to our own studios and wrote about five sketches each over the course of and, a week and by sketches you mean uh you were all independently djs before the band was formed is that right correct yeah and we have we're all producers djs on our own got it so you're creating that uh and again, I'm not from the music world, but in the same way that, say, a the Neptunes might create a beat that someone would listen to to lay their music on top of, you guys are all creating those that type of framework uh, of sounds. And that's absolutely. the sketch? Got it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like something so like, you know, we would all be in our own individual studios and create, create a sketch that's just a really basic... And the, the reason it's a sketch is that it's just... Um, when you have instruments that don't sound glossy and super complete, it's just like a basic piano patch, very, very basic drums. You can really focusing on the, the songwriting itself. And so it's, it's just, it almost sounds like, like a demo from GarageBand or something. Like it's really crappy. If you heard our sketches, you'd think, wow, really? Like that's, that's, <laughs> what, <laughs> that's what the song started as. Um, oh man, we, that might, we might have to get that as a podcast bonus. Was, <laughs> a no, sketch actually, versus finished product would be amazing. I'd, actually, I have some of those loaded up. Oh, do you? Oh my I God. Can. I would love, can, can we listen to a, a sketch and then the finished product for something? Yeah. Let's, you know what? Let's, let's do it actually. And, but while, while we're here, we should, we should jump in really quick. Yeah. Um, I, you know, this is funny. So no one else has, has ever heard these before outside of the Kush Mom. So I thought this would, this would be actually a perfect opportunity to, to illustrate the difference between both of them. So, um, this is a song on our new record called, um, Our Demons. And this is, this is about two years of, and about 300, um, revisions in between these two. So, Here's the first one that we wrote out and we moved to Joshua Tree in the desert and we, we lived there for a month to write music and this is the very first one, um, version six. So that's 
That's a sketch. Mm -hmm. And then here's the, the completed version. Version 394. version 394 yes god it's like my blog posts <laughs> <laughs> no i love that though because uh you know, i've interviewed so many people on the podcast and if you look at the top performers the <laughs> and correct me if this isn't the case but there's there's a very significant degree of just obsessive perfectionism <laughs> oh yeah required to to get to the point where you create something that has any degree of sort of pop and longevity. Um, yeah, absolutely. It, there's, there's a really, I mean, and it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to have to be that way for us. I think that, but the, the attention to, I mean, the attention to detail is really, it's just microscopic. And I think that, that really, it, it goes back to caring about, and the funny thing is that it's not for anyone else either. It's like, you just have to know that every, every punctuation point is there and that you know ev everything is just right what do do the and I, and I don't know if i should call them sound, songs or tracks my vocabulary for music is off what do you prefer to call songs um i actually i kind of use them interchangeably okay so what are your most the songs that have had the the, the widest appeal that have ended up most popular what do they have in common if anything whether that's the actual in the the end product or in the process that goes into it or otherwise um there's there's two there's two kind of points to that that are really interesting so um i would say one of our most popular songs and i've thought about this a lot and and one of our most popular songs is fortune days um and the the interesting thing that that happens with this um so this is a, a funny side note because i actually have the the sketch loaded up right here if we want to oh yeah yeah wanna, yeah no. i'll play it right for you right after this but um so when we work on songs we have working titles so when we make a sketch we just write something just some whatever that's like kind of on our mo on our mind at the time and there's a really funny working titles for all these songs so fortune days used to be called something's about to happen because it feels like if there's something it's just tense i don't know something's about to happen or there's songs like the that are there's another one called yacht sex or super banging track so <laughs> it's like kind of just ridiculous funny stuff so fortune days something's about to happen when we wrote that song which ended up being one of our biggest tracks and and it's the same with our other ones are the ones that we didn't expect to be the biggest tracks. This was not the lead-off <laughs> single or anything. It just took on a life of its own, and um, so and, and it's, it's the same thing happened with Love, Death, and Mortality. The ones that we thought were going to be okay. This is definitely going to be the one that takes hold. Absolutely, 
was not. And in fact, uh, <laughs> in fact, Can't Kill Us, which we wrote the the whole the which ended up being the one on Sin City and the one that was if you look on Spotify, it's our most played track from from that record, and it's the, the video on YouTube and everything. Can't kill obviously, us. can't kill us. Yeah, mm-hmm. that one obviously resonated with um, many people. But that again, that was the one that we didn't think was was going to be. That was the we were like, let's just write one just really kind of weird, off the cuff, badass song. But for us, that was us just letting go a little bit and running with something that that we didn't really care if it had yeah. any any sort of resonance with with people. I love it. So, Fortune Days, one of the most popular tracks from the Glitch Mob. You have the draft. Yeah, the sketch. I'd love to hear the sketch and the and the finished product, or yes. or the later draft. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. No one else has ever heard this. So it's just, it's just you and I here, Tim. <laughs> just us. Just the two of us. So kind of that vibe. So then I'll play just a little clip of the, the Wh- finished. Version. Which version was that? That was. Um, it doesn't have the song number in there, but that's July two thousand nine. Okay, got it. So that was, that was probably about. Uh, we finished the album in winter, so that was about six months. So yeah, I think that um, you know, the only consistent thing that shows the songs that resonate with people are the ones that we're never going to be able to tell. So we just I've just given up trying to figure that out and just kind of make more music. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like the Costanza principle. He's like, Jerry, I figured it out. I just need to do the opposite of everything that I think I should do, and it'll be perfect. It's like you just, right. you just have to change <laughs> all the tracks that you, you do for yourself that you care the least about or that you do for the hell of it end up being the ones that pop. It's funny how 
how consistent that is even with my writing also. You know, I'll put, and I have an attention to detail in both cases, but I'll put so much effort into something I'm sure from the very outset is going to be a huge hit and it'll just fall completely flat. <laughs> and then I'll just kind of vomit something out that, that has a lot of emotion in it. And that rawness, I, I suppose, just clicks and <laughs> it's, it's, it's depressing or really... Uh, uh, you know, encouraging, depending on how you look at it, because you know, I'll I'll do these things very quickly that pop and do very well, like this recent blog post on uh, what my morning journal looks like, and I think it's just mm. called what my morning journal looks like, which took me you know, a half hour or maybe an hour to to get out, and then there are other posts I spend thirty hours on, and, <laughs> and I, I it's crickets, just crickets. <laughs> wow. Now I would like to ask you. So is is the morning journal? I was going to ask you what is a post that you've done that you didn't think was going to do well and then resonated with a lot of people. Is that is that the morning journal one? That that is one example. There's another that I put up which was uh, let's see. It's it's called something along the lines of do you need to borrow some strength or borrow some strength today? Watch this and it was just mm. it was a YouTube embed uh, embed with a bit of context and it was about um, I believe that in particular case is Kyle Maynard who's this uh, he was born a quad amputee but ended up being a very successful competitive wrestler, uh, did the military. He was the first person to do the military crawl all the way up Mount Kilimanjaro. He's just an wow. incredible guy. I've, I've had the privilege of meeting him and spending time with him. Very short, very very emotionally open. And uh, you know, it makes me wonder if that's the case with the music as well, even though it's conveyed through sound and not through words. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, and you know, that, that actually just, just made me... Um, you know, that what you just said right there reminded me of something. So one of the people on our team, uh, our art director, Dean, who helps curate all the visual aspects is we could do a whole nother episode on everything visual from the show visuals to the album cover. Um, Dean's a super old friend of mine. And um, he he designs everything for us. Um, everything you see visually passes through him. And the other day, he sent me a... Um, a text and he said, you have to go listen to this podcast, this radio lab show called in the dust of this planet. Oh. And, and the episode, if you haven't heard it, I, I implore you to go listen to it. It's just fascinating. And the, the whole thing circulates around, um, this, this philosopher and the, uh, and nihilism. I won't go too far into it, but it's a, it's about kind of the, the apocalyptic feeling of what's happening right now in the world and how the, the, what, I took from it and how it resonates with the glitch mob and what he, the reason why he sent it to me was that there's something about, um, badassery and stuff <laughs> and something that, and should they even say that in, in the podcast about why does, what is it about something that is badass <laughs> that is resonating with people right now? And, um, and it ultimately has to do with music being like a force field or a shield. And when you said, can I borrow some strength? It just really made me think of actually music. And, and part of the reason why our music resonates with people is it's almost like in, in the, the darkness of, say, our album cover has this, this samurai figure. But there's something about it that says that I've seen into the darkness, I've seen it, and I'm not afraid. And what they say in that podcast really resonated with me. And I almost see music in the same way of some of this stuff that that you do of you're 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 handing people these little tools although maybe music is a different sort of emotional or spiritual tool i mean a lot of people will work out to our music and if it helps you 
get out a couple more reps in your set, then I think that, you know, that that's really one of the benefits that it has to offer. Definitely. Oh yeah. No, I need to, I need to pick up, this is your brand on music as well. There's another one called musicology. I think it is, or mm. musicophilia, one of the two. That's Oliver Sacks. Exactly. Which I really want to dig into. And, uh, back in the day I used to take uh, five piece drum lessons and got into hand drumming recently, which, oh, that's cool. yeah, with the djembe and a couple of other types, which, which I, I'm really enjoying. And it's just a very therapeutic. Yeah. And actually do you find, so for you, do you have a, uh, do you play any traditional instruments or have you, have you, uh, practiced any traditional instruments? Um, so the short answer is no. Um, <laughs> and I think that's, that's kind of a funny thing. And you actually, when you had tweeted this morning and I, I posted on our, on the, our Facebook asking some people what they would want to talk about and something that come up, one of the guys posted something like, how important is it for you to learn traditional instruments to play, to pre perform or produce music? Yep. And uh, none of us have any traditional music uh, instrument training. We've, we, have, we didn't go to music school or anything like that. I actually can't really, I mean, I can kind of get around on a piano. Um, I, I did go to UC Santa Cruz and I, and I studied, um, if you could call it that in the electronic music program, <laughs> um, which was more about, um, smoking pot and playing with crazy synths, to be quite honest. But that, that aside, I, um, Ed, Ed and Josh both played, um, can, they can play guitar and, and keys just a little bit, but none of us are really that good at, playing 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 instruments um although i feel like I, at this point i have an intuitive understanding for for music but i've come at it from a very non-traditional angle i actually came in more via technology um i'm when i very first started messing around with music i was it was through computers um uh, and we do stuff to make up for the fact that we're not we're not really that good at <laughs> i mean i'm saying we can we can get by and ed's a pretty good piano player but nothing compared to like a a concert pianist or someone who's classically classically trained but for instance one of the tricks we use which actually we were using this yesterday and i thought this is a very um tim ferrisian trick <laughs> is is so for instance um in ableton there's a plugin that allows you to to transpose a scale. So what that means is, is that it allows, uh, allows us to only know one scale. So in, in the piano, let's say you study C major, that's just one combination of keys that all sound good together. Right. And then you use the plugin to move that around. So I actually only know one scale. There's so many different things to know, but I play that one and then Ableton will actually translate it for me. So, um, we, what, we what is the name of that plugin? Do you know? It's just the, it's just the Ableton, um, pitch plugin. Got it. So it'll just, there's a, there's a plugins that come with an Ableton that allow you to, um, to program chords and transpose your, your playing around so that you don't, it's, it's basically just, just some shortcuts. So, um, man, I went on a tangent there, but no, no, I love, I love tangents. That's the whole point. Yeah. I, well, I think that so, so yeah, so we are actually an example of people that, um, have had, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've made a, a career, but not actually fundamentally being able to perform music <laughs> right, that with, well. I would with, say that. Well, with traditional instruments. So how, how have yeah. you found that to help you mm. compared, well, compared to if there are people, you know, in EDM who have traditional backgrounds, uh, you know, how, how has that lack of, of formal schooling helped or hindered you? Do you feel? 
Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of things there. So, um, you know, so one one thing to to mention is that, you know, Ed um, before he, we were doing Glitch Mob, Ed wrote music for commercials, and I think this is a this is an interesting piece of the whole puzzle. It's also Ed is a is a so the the detail focus, the really hardcore detail oriented stuff comes from from Ed, um, and he used to write music for commercials, and so what that what that looks like is let's say that you're writing a a commercial and it's it's a cheerful commercial for bubblegum and then he would have to write something that sounds like that or say that there's a a dark commercial for a new uh car that's really technological so so he for years and years he his he was basically writing jingles so he has the ability so you can say ed um we need to we need to have something that sounds this and he can actually just like piece together something really quick. And I think it kind of comes back to some kind of uh, the Gladwell 10,000 hour thought where Ed has spent so much time just um, churning out different emotions, just really little short snippets of different feelings and emotions that he had that, that kind of uh, training, but it's a very real world style training. It was, it wasn't like an actual music school. And um, so, so that said, I think, you know, for me, um, Coming into it, really bending the rules from right out the gates and, and having that be part of the way that I see music, I think has been beneficial because I didn't understand music really. Just I just kind of understood my own little corner of it and I was just doing my little thing. And I remember when, when someone first explained a chord to me, I was already actually like, you know, having a, a decent amount of commercial success, but I didn't understand a very basic idea <laughs> of music that's like what a chord is right and and you know it's, it's, it's the same thing like before we went to go play our very first show with our new live gear at coachella and i was up there playing drums i had never even picked up a drumstick in my entire life um <laughs> so it's, it's which is sounds like something that that you have done i, I <laughs> which i actually i saw the uh <clears throat> episode of your show where you did that pain <laughs> yeah that was uh that was stress inducing being on stage i'd never been in front of a of an audience for any type of music i actually i'd never performed music for anyone uh whether one or two people let alone a sold out <laughs> auditorium with you know with an actual band uh yeah that was stressful i uh i i i uh i you know but it was euphoric at the same time it was this very sort of pleasure pain mix it was interesting uh and once once i got into the flow it was fine even though uh, i i feel like audiences are more forgiving if you're if you're if you're transmitting the proper emotion for a few minutes they're very forgiving (laughs) as long as you maintain the flow it seems yeah that's Uh, that's that's true and i think that's and that's something why people you know like when people come see us you don't come to see us play because exactly like what you're saying is not wow, they're really, really good at their instrument. Like if you go see Santana play, you're thinking, wow, he is incredibly good at playing that guitar. That is unbelievable. You don't see us, but at the same time, you still you, you get the feeling of us being up there, being emotive and, and, and playing the songs. Um, and I think just to jump back, as far as, as, as what has helped or hindered, you know, I know a lot of people that have gone to music school and gone to electronic music school or electronic production school. And I think there's, there's, 
it can help you and hurt you because in one way you learn how to make a song sound finished and proper, but you also learn the rules. And I feel like most of the really good music that you like is music that inherently kind of breaks the rules. And that's just what's exciting about music is something that that inspires you or something that colors outside of the lines. And I think that had I gone to a music school and learned the correct way to do it, that they that's the a fast track to being an engineer and being someone who works in the studio and helps other people produce albums. And that's that's actually a really cool thing. And that's something that I would love to learn how to do and figure out is to be a record producer like a Rick Rubin style. I mean, I just, he, Rick Rubin is one of my biggest inspirations seeing at what he does. But that's a very different thing than someone like us who are, um, you know, we're just kind of off in our own little corner creating our own little soundscapes. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's funny you mentioned Rick. I'm hoping to have him on the podcast. So I might tap you for questions. Oh, uh, yes. The, so if you were to, and I have just, uh, just one or two kind of longer form questions, then I'd love to hit you with some rapid fire questions from some of the listeners. Uh, if you were sort of, uh, assigned, it sounds, it's a very dreary word. If, if you volunteered <laughs> for, uh, teaching me how to produce music or make music using the tools that you have. Uh, because I've always found music very intimidating, but let's just say I were to spend a month with you and you, you're, you, you had, you know, you, the, the prize was several million dollars to get me to the point where I could create a finished track of some type that didn't make people cringe. Where, <laughs> where would you, where would you have me start? What does that first week look like? Um, that's a great question. So I think that the the core of a really good song, it really honestly has to do with, with what you want to say. So I would actually do some, like, let's say I would, I would ask you to go find 10 tracks that are, that resonate with you or something that, so maybe I would want to produce a track that sounds like this, or this is really what I'm feeling right now. And just to get, get you in the, the general creative space of thinking about what you're really trying to say. Um, and then the next step would be creating, let's say a sketch kind of like, like we do, um, and, and, and focusing on some very basic building blocks of music. So, you know, the, a very basic electronic song will be, um, a combination of drums, melody, chords, and bass. So those are the building blocks of a song and you can, and, and electronic music is so fluid. You can kind of move all of those those things around so we would have we would go over um what all of those different things are and how they play together and um it, and actually i wouldn't spend too much time on learning music theory you know and and as this is kind of goes back to what i was talking about before is there's ways to shortcut all that stuff to where we could just learn one scale or maybe not even just learn okay these notes sound good together and there's a there's a thing in ableton that you could lock the keyboard to a scale, which means that like if a cat walks on it, it'll still sound good. <laughs> and you could so have we, an entire band of six cats on keyboards. Yes, that's actually a great idea. Uh, <laughs> the cat mob. Yes. Oh man. So we would get, get the, out the would, trademark lawyers. <laughs> that that actually sounds like it could have a big I'm just fucking with you. <laughs> okay. I like that. Um 
so so yeah so we would i would put some tools in place to um to get everything fixed so no matter what we did it was going to sound good and then and then just kind of i think the the next step is um you know the interesting thing something that's that's changed over the past couple years (laughs) since we started is that you can actually buy sound sets that are really good Mm. and this this wasn't this didn't exist when we very first started and makes me sound like hey sonny we used to have to right. walk, up, <laughs> walk up the soundscape uphill both ways yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, i mean and i mean compared to what we actually had i mean if you take to people who have actually been doing it for longer it's it's probably i probably sound like a snotty child compared to it started in 2006 there's people who, who actually had to write music on punch cards and stuff like that and just actually pretty crazy but that said you can like we could walk into guitar center now i mean i don't know if this is a good answer i'll be like tim let's go to guitar center we're gonna spend a hundred dollars and like buy <laughs> a great sample kit because the stuff that people have now are because it uh, you know out of the box stuff sounds so good so we would find some really good samples that resonate with you that you like because a lot of music production has to do with um starting with really good source material and then right. And taking away stuff is actually a lot more important than adding to it. So what I mean is like if we went to Guitar Center and bought a sample CD that was good and it had really good source material and then you put a bunch of stuff together, it's a lot easier to to um, start shaving away and removing the stuff that's not there to, to get everything fitting in, in its right place. When you have a, a finished track, let's just say like uh, the the finished fortune days and i and i and again this is speaking from pretty deep in my ignorance pool but if i look in say garage band and you have multiple tracks right for different vocals or music tracks or whatever how many separate melodies drums etc do you have in a finished song like fortune days um it really changes on a song to song basis um what would you say and, the, the the average range is I'd say that, you know the, the average is is somewhere around you know 50 wow um and it can it can be much i mean some songs we've had over 100 tracks and some songs have been have been less also because that's the tracks that we write are especially something like fortune days there's there's so many different parts to it and the way the way that it's talked about in music terminology is so it's like each section you assign a letter to it so like the intro is A, and then the first the first thing that happens right after that when the drums drop will be called B, and then it goes back to A. So it could be like, you know, and, and a pop song can be A, B, A, C style layout, something like that. Right. And you know, our songs are like A, B, C, A, D, C, B, and it goes on. You <laughs> kind of gets we have a lot of like complex pieces moving around. So right. because it's like that, um, we don't always recycle um the sections over and over again then it can be um you know each one of those sections can have up you know 10 20 tracks and and there's really a lot of layering that goes on too and i say that's that's something that if there are any um producers out there listening that are looking for production stuff that's a that's a big um that's something that we spend a lot of time on is the layering of the sounds and the sampling and um, all the sounds you hear have been processed and, and are, are complex packs of many different pieces together to make one sound so that it sounds custom and, and not like anything that comes right out of, uh, of the box. What, uh, what percentage of your samples would, 
are uh, sort of off the rack versus custom? Um, you know, it, it, it changes on an album to album basis, but, um, say a lot of the stuff is, is custom. Um, we're, we're pretty like, so if let, let's say you open a synthesizer, a very popular synthesizer, um, that's used right now, it's called massive. Mm-hmm. So you can open it and there's a set of presets in there and you can cycle through them or you can, um, you can clear out the synth and then design from the ground up. And we do a lot of that. We do, we do both. Um, but a lot of our sounds are are customized, and what that allows us to do is really, really control the sound. And if we do use stuff that is out of the box or preset, we we mash it and process it and layer it to the fact where you really couldn't tell. Right. Who besides the Glitch Mob? Uh, what other bands might you recommend people listen to if they want to hear good layering? That's a that's a really good question. Um, I'm listening to right now. So there's a there's a producer who's a good friend of ours called um, Amon Tobin, um, yeah. and his music is so complex and layered. And his album Fully Room, like he outlayered everybody. What, what <laughs> was the name of the album again? The album is called Fully Room. Fully F O L E Y, like the the sound effects. Yeah, absolutely. And he went out into the world and. Um, recorded sounds of, I mean, just, there's actually a little mini documentary about it. It's really fascinating, but he's recording sounds of animals and motorcycles and walking around on weird sticks and rocks. And he made a whole album that's almost entirely comprised of stuff like that. And, and so when you really, if you put that on your headphones and, and, and listen to that, that is a, a real, um, master level mix engineer creative undertaking. Very cool. Uh, I would love to ask you some some quick questions from uh, from some of the listeners out there, and then uh, perhaps we can listen to another track and then uh, wrap up for this round one. Uh, so the first question is, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna he gave me two, and I'm gonna have to take the more ridiculous. This is Jan Habich. Do you pee in the shower? I assume the answer is yes. I mean, every guy pees in the shower. <laughs> Of course. Yeah. Right. I think it's actually at this point, especially in Los Angeles, you you're you have to. The drought police would come and get you if you don't. <laughs> uh Ian the BT Winter. Uh this is the cl- this is the desert island question. So if you could take one book, one album, and one luxury, I would just say one third item of any type to a desert island, what would they be? That's a great question. Um so I think my album would have to be FX Twin Select Ambient Works. Okay. Book. Oh man, that changes so much. So book is going to be the unbearable lightness of being. Okay. And third luxury item, maybe my Chemex. <laughs> man, that'd be a. You need to. You gotta hope there's some coffee beans on that island. Yes. Yeah, Chemex is great. Uh, have you tried the AeroPress? I have tried the AeroPress. I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. AeroPress is great. If you're going to make coffee for more than two cups, though, the Chemex is, is a good way to go. Uh, very cool. All right. Next question. Uh, you know, this is one I think a lot of people are curious about. So if you're comfortable answering it, what are your different revenue streams for, for the band, for the work sure. you guys do? Um, so this is an interesting point, actually, that I don't think a lot of people know, but... Um, 
we don't make any money from touring, to be quite honest. Um, I mean, there's a lot of money that comes in, but we take all of it and we dump it all back into the show. So um, that touring for us, I mean, uh, hopefully at some point it gets there, but it's really labor of love. I mean, the whole, the, the process of building the blade and all of the bits and pieces that make the whole thing tick was really expensive. And we just decided that we want to do this. And so that is not a, re a revenue stream for us. Um, you know, eventually I mean, it's kind of like an investment. I mean, you know, as we keep touring with it, maybe we'll make some money um, down the line and touring is a very, it's a, it's a very expensive undertaking um, because, you know, there's, there's people that have to set the, set the show up and everything has to travel around and be freighted internationally and everything. So there's a, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, a lot of people do make money from touring, but right now for us, the equation is not that. Um, so most of our, our, um, our, the, 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 what keeps the lights on is actually mostly the licensing for us and, and the music and the music sales. Very cool. Do you guys do any merch? You probably we must. do. Yeah. Yes, we have, um, we have actually, and that's, that's another thing is that, um, I'd say part of the, our whole DIY ethos is that we, we have a lot of merch and we've actually worked on and designed a lot of the stuff ourselves. And almost everything you see in Glitch Mall World is something that has passed through us. Um, but yeah, you can see our, our merch stores, a lot of really cool stuff. And we collaborate, we've collaborated with some friends of ours and made some, some, uh, some cool stuff. Very, very cool. Uh, are there any bands that you're aware of that you suspect make the majority of their money through merchandising? Uh, yeah, you know, that that's that's actually, I was just talking with someone about this yesterday now that's, that's kind of why you mentioned that. But um, in in uh, the kind of punk rock landscape, as it's evolved into a lot of those bands, the whole Warped Tour, um, and, and I... I don't actually know this to be a fact. This is someone who, <laughs> someone else who told this to me. But a lot of a lot of what happens if you go to Warp Tour, it's a lot of young, younger fans there, and uh, the bands who play there don't get paid a whole lot of money, but they make a lot of their money from from merch sales. Got I don't it. know if it's sort of the majority, but but um, there's you know that whole touring entity is set up around the fact that you know, they have these huge merch stores that. Um, there's like a big merch mall in the middle of, of the warp tour as it travels around. Got it. Yeah. Sounds like Ozfest also, yep. uh, which I've been to a couple of times. That is a blast at Shoreline Amphitheater, at least oh, uh, <laughs> just insane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, so this, this is a good one. This is from, I'm going to paraphrase here. This is from Agatha Fox. What are, what are some of your fears? What are some of my fears? Oh, that's deep. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a that's a good question. Um, I have a very light question to follow this one up. Okay. <laughs> what am I? You know. Um. I you know I I had a crazy long conversation with my my dear friend Ben. Um, Deiru is another music producer. Just the other day, we were coming back from the gym, and we 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 were uh, talking about how the climate is fucked, <laughs> and and how it's seemingly everything is turning from what could we do to prevent total climate ca catastrophe to now that it's happening. Um, what? How are we going to um, 
wrestle with this catastrophe and the more I think and and read and learn about what's happening with uh, the the current state of Earth, it's it seems to be pretty doomed. Maybe not for us in our lifetime, but definitely for our children and our our grandchildren. So that is a it's a it's a pretty scary um, thought. It is. It is. Just as a side note uh, for folks, I, I just recently interviewed uh, Peter Diamandis, who's the chairman of the X Prize. He does a lot of work with space technologies, and mm-hmm. uh, he's. <laughs> co-founder of a company called, for instance, Planetary Resources, the idea being to send ships to Mm. close-orbiting asteroids to mine precious resources to bring back to Earth or use extra planetarily. And uh, he is very, he would be called by a lot of people a techno-optimist, but uh, I, I I was similarly just in the last year or so, especially after talking to climate scientists, getting very depressed and kind of put into a malaise about like, wow, we're like the whole planet's just going to be boiling in 30 years if, yeah. if we keep it up. And uh, Peter was talking about, I won't spend too much time on this, but talking about how they could actually put up a pane in space that could be rotated very precisely, almost, you know, to, to, en- to enlarge or, or lessen its profile as it in between the earth and the sun to modify the amount of energy hitting the planet's surface and that he basically said even like i think we're going to be able to predict or i'm sorry prevent sort of catastrophic meltdown but if we're not the good news is there are actually technologies like this that we can absolutely deploy to minimize some of the damage and i was like huh that's the first time i've heard anything of that so wow just isn't there a simpsons episode about that isn't mr burns block the sun Uh, you know, I wouldn't doubt it. Maybe, maybe we'll all look back in fifty years and be like, "Oh my God, the Simpsons fucking called it." That's amazing. Once again, and the Sim- no, exactly. Like with the, uh, didn't they have Barack Obama like versus Mitt Romney prediction like, like you know, ten years ago? I mean, the Simpsons. I think there are people with uh, with ESP working at the Simpsons as writers, but that does uh, make me feel a little bit a little bit better. Also, just I, I I am with you to when you know following someone like Elon Musk that is saying, you know what, I'm just gonna go and make this reality better because i mean i get just everything that 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 he does completely boggles my mind so it makes me feel a little bit better to know that there are real life tony starks out there um doing what they can (laughs) working on the problem uh so to to ask a uh a much lighter question um sort of a what is your favorite pastry this is from medium rare my favorite pastry i think it would have to be just a plain croissant and you said it correctly too i uh is there any particular way you guys celebrate after shows um no you know there's we we have a pre-show meditation we do um, i want to hear about this before every single show um and uh we've been doing it for a couple years now and um before we go on we have a huddle and we just it's just a quick 30 second meditation and we say we say here's to the now and it's just a way to let everything go and focus and go on stage and it really it really helps um after the show uh no we we don't really celebrate too much i love the pre-show so is it here's to the now and then 30 seconds of silence yeah exactly we count down we say it in unison and we also grab whatever other team members are in the room and then we do uh do a quick meditation yeah just like take a deep breath and then have silence i love it uh 
When you think of the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind? That's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I could actually pick one person, but I would, I would say that I'm so fortunate to be surrounded by so many people that I consider to be successful. And I guess it can be boiled down to the way that I define success is um, someone who's really genuinely excited about what they what they get to do and and is carving out their own path um any anyone from someone like my sister who's who's in medical school working to to be a doctor who I was just talking to who I think is an has an incredibly it's an incredibly difficult path um but what you know what she does i mean i guess it's difficult in the sense of you know i was just talking to her she's working at the at the icu right now and i think it's a it's a it can be a really heavy job and i think of other people who are like my artist friends in la who are getting to create and do these things but the the, the fundamental um link between all of these different people is just doing something that really lights lights you up on the inside Definitely. Uh, let's see. If you could give, how old are you at the moment? I'm 34. 34. If you could, wow, we've got pretty closely matching timelines. I love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could give your 20 year old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Chill out. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down. In what in what way? In what way? I feel like myself and other people I know that are, you know and that are in the early to mid twenties get really wound up about things having to be a certain way or is it? Good? I don't know. It's just I think that um, enjoy because it all kind of doesn't matter as much as you think it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. Will this be? Will you remember this in ten years? Probably not. No, no people don't even remember a tweet twelve minutes later. None of this is ten years from now. <laughs> That is the truth. Into the slipstream. Uh, is there? I I have never been to an EDM show of any type. Uh, what show or festival should I go to? That is that's a great question. I think that um, if you've never been to a show, I think. Well, you should come. You, could, you should come to see us play. It, Absolutely, I'm yeah. Biased, especially because no, that um, has that has to happen. I remember we missed. I think we missed each other by day in San Francisco or something like that, and I was gutted. So, yes, that must happen. Next time you should you should come. Um, there are if if you know if Daft Punk ever plays again, if you're going to see one show, your Desert Island show, I would say if they do another tour, you have to go see them play because what they do, and they have really set the bar for everybody but it's just it's the perfect their their live show is the perfect marriage between just fun visceral classic dance music and crazy techno futurism i mean it's it's really it really changed my life wow that's a strong Um, statement i love it okay yeah that's that, that would be it do you have any particular morning rituals what does the first hour of your day look like yeah, I do. I do. And you know, it, it changes also because the way that Glitch Mob works is very much in phases. Our years rotate from phase to phase. So there's there's um, studio phase, which we're in right now. Then there's tour prep phase, tour, um, tour recovery, and then 
rinse and repeat. Um, so right now, um, I, I get up, say probably around eight and I, I meditate, um, every day and I, um, have for, for how long? 20 minutes. What type of meditation? Um, I practice, uh, transcendental meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've tried all sorts of different, different types. Um, and this is just the one for me, which I, I've, I've heard you say in the podcast too, that just kind of stuck. I've, yeah, I've done, yeah, I did it this morning. Yeah, it's great. I do it. So I don't actually do it twice a day, every single day. And I hope my t- teachers don't hear me say that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I wish it's since we're, since it's just the two of us talking, uh, <laughs> I, the, the two, I feel like a failure if I mentally commit to two and then can't do two or yeah. don't do two, but once in the morning has a tremendous effect for me. Yeah. It's really, it's really, um, changed my life. It's been a couple of years for me now. And, uh, a friend of mine sort of, um, gifted me a, a course cause he works for, um, the David Lynch foundation. And so I got to, to take the class and it's, it's really just been life changing. It's, and it's, it's because I've been able to stick with it and actually keep it because I'm just reading, I've read so many books about mindfulness and meditation and I've taken different courses and it's just, it, whatever, I mean, you know, TM just happens to be something that you can do on a day-to-day basis. And it's, it's really, it's really quite simple. Um, do you do it in, in bed? Do you just wake up and sit up against the headboard and do it? Or is it after you brush your teeth after breakfast? What, mm. what's, when do you do it? So I think, you know, actually an important part of my, um, important part of my morning ritual is that I get up and I don't look at my phone or my computer for the first hour. And I, and I have this quiet time and I think, and I, 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 I used to be the type of person where I would get up and right away, I'm like emails, texts, tweet like whatever looking at the the hamster wheel of my phone and realized how much that was scattering my brain so meditation for me actually was something that got me out of that state so so i wake up um i don't look at any technology i make tea i make uh, matcha tea usually mm-hmm. um or or different um sencha some kind of a green tea and then i meditate and um then i'll have breakfast or do a I do a quick morning workout that's like separate from a, a different, like, um, you know, weightlifting gym exercise just to kind of get the blood flowing. So I'll do, do something quick, then I'll have a breakfast and then I'll intentionally plug in after I have. And I also will part of this, uh, this time it will be reading. So I, I get, uh, even just, even just 20, 20 minutes to read a book in the morning before I plug in and jump on the information superhighway. What is the, what would the workout potentially look like? Let's say the current workout or the most recent workout. What was the what were the movements? Um, this morning, I just did some uh, some kettlebell swings. Got it. Um, and that's that's kind of like a the quickest bang for my buck um, thing to do. And I've been working on on mobility quite a bit more, especially with so much time in the studio. Actually, I've been really I'm getting really into these um, the yoga tune up balls. They're these like hard um, these, these, these balls of different sizes that, you know, I've, you can take. And I think for people who spend a lot of time sitting down, I've been using them a lot. Even when, when we're in the studio, when we're not sitting in the chair, each one of us will have a foam roller, these yoga tuna balls, and we're doing mobility stuff so that we're actually, cause we sometimes we'll have these sessions that go, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. And, and so I think it's important to, to do the, the focus on mobility um, and then I'll, I'll have another workout later on in the day, which is, um, weightlifting or kind of like CrossFit style workouts. Got it. And your breakfast after that morning workout, what does that look like? Um, 
you know, I, I have, I've follow a very like paleo slash for our body style eating. I've, I'm, I've, I've was a big fan of actually i've definitely evangelized your book to many friends of mine along the way um so thanks for that um oh, but thank you <laughs> I, I have eggs almost every single day and i actually i love the i love the um either scrambled eggs or just uh, fried eggs with vegetables and coffee yeah that's the uh the breakfast champions <laughs> well uh one more question, and then I'd love to maybe close out with the track. Uh, what is the best piece of advice you ever received? The most important. The best piece of advice I ever received. You know, it's something my father told me when I was very, very little. When I was, I mean, probably five or six, that just kind of stuck with me, and that was. Um, don't force it. Don't force it. And what is that? Is that everything? Is it referring to work? What is that referring to? Yeah, it's seemingly such a simple thing that's really just just stuck with me, and it's been kind of one of the. It's, it's become um, something that, that of a. Uh, it's just it's an aphorism that's that's really stuck with me. I think that for the creative process, that's really our guiding light. You know, if, if something. If something is not working, um, if something is not happening, I think it's really important to just let it, let it be, yeah, and, um, and just let things happen organically. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. It's very short, easy to remember. And if I think about, you know, all those posts that I put tons of time into, or chapters that I put tons of time into, that ended up failing or just not doing what I wanted them to do, there's almost always a point where it was just like, wow, this is a grind. Like, this is yeah. not, it's not coming together, but I'm just going to force it to come together like a Frankenstein. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think that 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 very rarely has the intended results, um, whether it's something creative or just in life in general, is trying to force a a square peg into the circle hole. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would love to perhaps listen to another track for a bit and, and then uh, if, then you can come back and we'll, we'll learn where we can find out about uh, you and all things Glitch Mob. But is there something we could listen to before we do that? Yeah, that's, that's, I'll play um, Can't Kill Us off of our latest album, Love, Death, and Mortality. Wonderful.
So the best piece of advice I ever got was actually it was from my sister, and yeah, you know, she's a she's a doctor, and she was I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was something to the effect of she was um, she was working or she's she's uh, caretaking for some. Uh, some older people who are nearing the end of their life and they were just talking about what things that they valued had sort of come in, closing the, closing the door in life and closing the chapter and they're talking about what really meant a lot to them. And then it was the things like love and, and friendship and these personal relationships. And I think for me, there was just something about the essence of of distilling down to <laughs> once all the all the bullshit aside what really matters in life and i and i rem- i'll never forget that using that as a guiding light to to just uh keep in the headlights yeah yeah it's uh it's incredible how easy it is to get caught up in the minutia and nonsense it's so easy it's uh particularly yeah. with technology and just the never-ending stream of information and inputs Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, there's something to music and a, a statement like that or anything that I don't know if there's a word for it in some other language. You might know this, but the feeling of when you feel really small, like when you look at the stars and you're, you're, you feel like your problems don't really matter. I think that feeling like something you're connected to something bigger than yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is, this has been a blast and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do a, a part two sometime soon. But where can people, where can people thank you, find you, ask you questions online? Where are the best places to learn more about you and The Glitch Mob? Uh, you can check us out at theglitchmob.com or on Twitter, everything uh, at The Glitch Mob and myself at Boretta, B-O-R-E-T-A. Wonderful. Well, thanks once again, man. This has been great and hopefully we'll get to do a jam session in person. Maybe I'll get to to play around with Ableton and cause some trouble. Let's let's do it. <laughs> thanks, All right. Tim. All right. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye.